What's an open parachute and why would you need a school called Open Parachute Schools? I've got an opportunity over the next three episodes of our special series for Series 4 of Game Changers to be talking with Dr. Haley Watson. She's a clinical psychologist, CEO of Open Parachute. She's got even more degrees than I do, which is wonderful. She's been creating and delivering youth and school-based programs globally for the past 15 years. We're going to be talking with her about her story. We're going to look at bullying and what it is and how it occurs. And then we're going to talk about health and wellbeing generally. Hayley Watson, let's go. Hayley, it's lovely to have you with me and the opportunity to have a wee chat. Thank you for coming yes. on Game Changers. Absolutely. It's so great to be here. Thank you very much. Um, it, things are okay in California at the moment for you at the very least. You're, you're in Long Beach, is that right? Yes, in Long Beach. So yeah, we're not around the bushfires um, and it's, yeah, as, as normal as could be expected during a pandemic. You know? as, normal, um, as normal as it can be expected <laughs> in the most abnormal year of all time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Although 1353, I think, might, might have been even more abnormal, but that's just a history nerd of me coming out. Um, Hayley, we're really glad that you could join us on Game Changers and, and take some time to have a, a bit of a deeper chat. You're a really interesting person and you've done a huge amount already and you're doing really, really important work in areas which are, can I say, endemic to humanity and to education. We've got... Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> you know, we've, we've got... We, we know that we've got issues with the relationship between the mainstream and the other that are part of who we are. And this year, beyond all other years, um, you know, we, we, we are seeing an, an exemplar of that writ large in society. Before I, before I ask you to dig into your story a little bit, perhaps you want to tell me a little bit about your experience of what's going on, particularly in North America at the moment, and your take on what you're seeing. Uh, particularly around things like Black Lives Matters and the protests and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's so many things going on at the same time, which is, I think, you know, one of the experiences of this whole kind of COVID crisis is everything is boiling to the surface. And so, you know, when we experience something challenging, everything else, all of our earlier experiences, all of our patterns, all of everything kind of comes to the surface. And so that has really disastrous consequences as well as really positive ones. So with Open Parachute, we have just, we just traveled up to Canada to do some filming. And we had this really interesting experience, which gave me a little bit of an insight into sort of just what's happening so much in the, in the States right now and, and also globally. But we were, we had American plates and we were driving through Canada filming. We have, of course had quarantined. Um, and we're following all safety protocols, but Canadians, you know, the, you know, the nicest people in the world, right? I'm Canadian. So, you know, we, we have this, you know, people are very friendly, people are very open. We were overtly, like people were hostile towards us. People wrote notes on our cars saying, go home. People were yelling out their car windows at us because everybody's freaked out right now. Everybody's in a situation of trauma. Everybody's scared. And when we're scared, we want to blame someone. We want a reason, we want to fix it 
and and we do things that are sort of unhelpful and unkind and that is sort of the basis of where prejudice comes from and prejudice exists everywhere because there are always people that are struggling but right now everyone's struggling even more so these things are rising to the surface even more everyone's on a bit of a hair trigger and so when you have this undercurrent of these deep prejudices that have always existed and people that have been traumatized and abused and treated unfairly you know the the bright side of this is that they're also finding their voice in this but then you have this perfect storm right where people are struggling people are not acting positively to each other and then and then people are in a lot of pain and they're trying to change things and so my sense of right now is that it's scary and it's intense but I also see a lot of beautiful changes happening. People are recognizing their own power and recognizing that they need to do something to change whatever it is that's in their life that's not working, whether that's a global change, a cultural change, or a personal change. It's interesting, isn't it? Here in, here in Australia, um, I mean, we're recording this now in, in the back end of August when we're just rediscovering spring and... Um, well, at least in your home country, they're, they're contemplating how cold it's going to be in about six weeks from now. But a little earlier this year, when the marches around the world for Black Lives Matters began and the city I was in at that point in time, beautiful city of Melbourne, was in a state of lockdown because of COVID. And suddenly we had, you know, I should know the figures, but it's 10, 20, 30,000 people on the streets protesting about Black Lives Matters. It was an extraordinary thing in Australian history, given the marginalization of indigenous people, given the lack of willingness of folk to see this as something which is central to the Australian experience. And, you know, there was a whole lot of argument about, you know, should people be out on the streets because it's COVID and this and that and the other. And the, and the simple answer was, for this very large group of people in Melbourne and in similar marches all over Australia, including one that my son, our producer, Oliver Cummins went to, um, in Sydney, people had to do this. There's a compulsion to yeah. act. Tell me about what you tell me about how to understand that compulsion to do things that are perhaps not rational but seemingly necessary. Mm, it's a great question, and you could sort of look at it in a few different ways because, you know, I feel like in every action there's a wisdom to it and there's a shadow side to it. So always when we're doing something that's big or that's maybe counterculture or that's maybe irrational, whatever that is, there'll be a part of our psyche that is doing that probably out of fear, probably out of frustration, desperation, um, you know, just wanting to do something. Even when we're talking about marching, I mean, one side of that is just needing community again and needing to get out of the house and really feeling so, so frustrated about these cultural inequalities and and just really needing to feel powerful again and to feel like you can do something to change things so there's there's a side of it that comes from just our fear as humans of of the lo the loss of control that we have right now in covid as well as just in general um, but then there's always the other side of it which is the wisdom side of it of just the this incredible quality that we all have as humans to love each other, to have compassion, to know, you know, to want to make changes, to want to um, do things differently. And so I think when you unpack 
human behavior, you always have to look at both of those sides and know that each individual person, when they're making choices, there, there will be their own stuff there. There will be things that are driving them that are, you know, hurts in themselves or hurts in their past. And there will also be just this spark of wanting to do something good. And, you know, as humans, a lot of our behavior is irrational. You know, there's so many things when you look at what people do, it always makes sense to the person doing it, but it often doesn't make sense to people around us. And this is why, you know, it's so important to get to know people's stories and to get to know each individual person rather than, you know, writing people off in one group as, you know, well, those are the people that protest or those are the people that don't protest or whatever it is. Those are the people that stay in and wear masks. Those are the people that don't wear masks. You know, we have all this division happening right now. And really everyone's story is going to be unique and their choices are going to make sense for them based on their own wisdom and their own struggles. It's really interesting hearing you talk about story in that way and, and the uniqueness of, of, of voice. So much of what we do at Game Changers and, and at the organisation I've been leading for the last 10 years, it's been to try to get people to step back from the stuff of education and start to think about what really matters. So things like test scores, they do matter. Things like attendance matters. Things like breakfast programs matters. Things like whether the Athenians or the Spartans are responsible for the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War. For an old ancient history teacher like me, that really matters. <laughs> but actually none of that really matters because what school should be about is to try and find the way in which we can equip, enable and empower the essential humanity of every child in our care and grow them to be the adult they need to be to thrive in the world. So there's this tension all the time when you're, at, when you're a chalky a, a teacher in a school where you're caught between the urgency of stuff and the importance of the big picture. Now, if, if I was to talk with our partner, Indigenous Education and Community and Healing, um, Leanne Wilson, who's, uh, who's uh, a, a really profound thinker on these sorts of things, she would say that the connection of storyline is essential to humanity to find the way in which we connect up all the different bits of storyline. So this is my little segue into your storyline. Why open parachute? Why Haley Watson? How did you get to this space where you can jump into an interview with some strange bloke with a beard from around the world and start offering such profound insights into what we're all experiencing at the moment? Where do I start that? <laughs> you know, back at the beginning. Yeah, it's, it, your, I mean, it's your call. <laughs> it's got to start in Canada. It has to start in Canada. It has to start again. Okay, we'll have to start again. And there's there's a big part of my story that's in Australia as well. So right. Um, let let me try to give you. Should we do the short version or the long version? Oh, uh, you can go as long as you like. <laughs> okay. Okay. So when I think the biggest thing about, in my experience, anyone that becomes extremely passionate about something and wants to do something big in the world. Usually that comes from their own experiences of struggle and overcoming those struggles and the growth and learning that happened along the way. And so my story is, is no different to that. I, um, when I was a child, I grew up in this tiny, beautiful little town in Canada, in Western Canada, British Columbia, that was very peaceful. I think there was probably like a thousand people living in the town. It was just this beautiful, quaint little town. Um, but my family experienced a, an extreme trauma. We, um, it's a very bizarre story. Basically our house and our cars were bombed five times with dynamite by someone 
random. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't random, but we don't know who it was. So we never found out who did this. We didn't know what was happening. So I basically grew up from the, and it was over a period of a year and a half. So for my formative years from the ages of two and four, I was in a state of fear basically the whole time. And so were my parents. So I grew up in this real sort of culture of terror and that then, and then there's, you know, other challenges that I face along the way, you know, my parents separated, my mom moved to another country, et cetera, et cetera. But this basically created in me a trauma reaction, but given the society that we lived in, given that, um, you know, the, the culture and the ideas around how to support kids have grown a lot since I was um, that age, but, you know, we didn't sort of realize what was happening unless you see it on the surface. And that's, I think, something that's true still to this day. When people, we only know when something's wrong, when we see the, the overt sadness, or we, we see these, you know, acting out behaviors, then we might start to think, oh, maybe there's something wrong. But in my personal story, the way that I coped with that is I figured out how to essentially disconnect from my feelings and bury it all. And because the fear was just too overwhelming that I needed to not feel it. So my life became what I thought was a really exciting, fun life. Everyone else thought I was having fun. Everyone, you know, I got good grades. I went to university. I, you know, played sport. I had friends. Everything was fine in my life. I was happy and bubbly, but deep down, I had this unresolved experience of trauma. And it wasn't until things started kind of falling apart in my life and I finally ended up in therapy and started learning some of these skills about how can I, you know, how can I connect to what's happening? How can I understand what's really going on here? That is what led me to, to start finding my purpose and my passion and really starting to live my truth. And so that journey and, and along the way, I became extremely passionate about working with teenagers. I think because my own adolescence was difficult in the sense that I didn't know how to navigate it. You know, again, on the surface, it looked like it was fine, but I, I just, I always have found that young people, you know, there's so much going on there. And if we can provide them with these tools and these skills when they're young, it's actually pretty easy to learn. These, this idea of what am I actually feeling, recognizing what's gone on in my life and how that might have impacted me, recognizing what, what thought patterns are, are maybe limiting me, you know, how has my family pattern and story impacted you know, myself, how are my relationships patterns flowing? These things are core skills. And right now in our culture, we only learn those in therapy. So, and you, and kids only end up in therapy if they have the, you know, the privilege to get there, if it's recognized, there's a struggle in them. So that sort of led to my burning passion and desire to make these skills accessible to all young people. So that no matter who you are, as you go through school. And so to me, you know, I loved what you were saying about what's really important in education. And to me, the, when, I, when I look at, you know, and I, as you said, I've, I've studied a lot. So I've, I've done 11 years of, of, of university, but it was none of those things are what helped me live. You know, what helped me live was exploring myself, exploring what I really felt. And so that, those key skills 
if we can teach those to young people, you know, the things that they can be capable of is amazing, you know, to be able to just work through, oh, you know, when someone is mean to me, it's not my fault or, oh, now I understand why I, you know, struggle in relationship dynamics or, you know, why don't I believe that I'm good enough and I can't do that thing? You know, what is that? Is that a cultural prejudice that I've been given or not? These deep questions of who we are is the thing that I see can can really change the world and can change the lives of the future generation. So that's kind of, you know, there's a lot of other things that happen along the way, but it, the sense of it is that is my own personal experience of what it takes to to really learn how to live. And, and I would say as well that that trauma was an extreme one, but in the work that I do, what I see is that we've all experienced traumas in some way, whether they're big or little. And there, there's these things that happen that are hard when we're young, whether it's just, you know, our parents are busy and, and distracted, or for instance, now a global pandemic, all of a sudden we're cut off from, you know, our, our support systems. All of the things, you know, everyone experiences some sort of hardship and without the tools to, to process that and move through that, those things stay with us and they impact us negatively, but they don't have to, you know, trauma doesn't have to be a negative, you know, my experiences of trauma have actually led to you know, this inspiration to do big things in the world. So we, but if we can help each young person do that same thing, take their story and turn it into one where they can be the hero rather than the victim, that changes everything. Oh, I love, I love hearing what you're talking about here. It's the, there, are, there are two song lines coming together here, two storylines coming together. There's a, there's a storyline from the world of clinical psychology. There's a, there's a storyline from the world of education. We've been doing research over the last decade into, essentially, as I said earlier, character and competence in wellness. And, and what does an education for that look like? And the answer that we've come up with, we call it the pathway to excellence because it's always, it's, it's, always, it's always good to have a story and to, to be able to tell the story. And essentially, it's... It's uh, about finding your purpose and using tools of self-determination to do that. So four key questions, who am I, where do I fit in, how do I best serve others, and then whose am I, which allow you to explore qualities of self-awareness, of relationship, of service, and then finally vocation. And, mm -hmm. and, and to do that thing, of course, which is the I think, and I think my colleagues think, um, and increasingly more and more people are coming to recognise in the world of education that it's in the expression of your work for other people and in giving up the pursuit of that which is selfish and going on a journey from me to you to us that we find the fullest expression of our humanity and, and, and how we make the journey into adulthood. Um, it's, it's interesting hearing you talk about, I mean, that the story of that trauma you go through, just, that's just ghastly. But, you know, it's like, as you said, this, this, in, in our schools every day, that... There is so much there. I want, I want, if I can, to ask you about the notion of intergenerational trauma because I'm yeah. really, really interested in that at the moment because so much of what we're seeing around the world, these shadows that are cast from generation to generation to generation, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it seems very strange to some people that somebody who... I'll, I'll, take, I'll take my mum's people for mm -hmm. a moment and that they were Polish Jews... My, my grandfather escaped, you know, the pogroms in 1927 and went over to Australia and he took my grandmother a couple of years later. Most of the family died in the gas chambers. You know, 
that's what happened. I could take my father's side where, you know, Irish Catholics, and then, you know, you go back a hundred years before that and you've got the famines and you've got the great trauma that sits there and goes on. Along comes little Philip born into probably the first generation of middle class that his families have ever had in Australia mm-hmm. in 1969. And I get to the 1990s and I'm trying to teach Holocaust history and I have to stop because I can't do it. It's too painful. For, it's too painful for me to do that. And it's still too painful, really, a lot of that to explore that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I can't speak to the trauma that other people feel. And there are mm-hmm. clearly people around the world right now who are feeling it tremendously. And there are teachers who are teaching those children who have that trauma themselves and their kids yes. that teaching yeah. have it. Talk to me about this intergenerational trauma and, mm-hmm. and, and how we make sense of it. Absolutely. So it's, it's basically, there's so many things going on that we're not overtly conscious of. And I think that as a culture, we sort of forget that. We think that it's only the thoughts that we're aware of or the decisions that we're aware of that have an impact. But there's this whole story going on underneath the surface. And so when you talk about intergenerational trauma, all we're saying is that when you've experienced something yourself, you carry it with you. So, so for instance, myself, having experienced trauma as a child, there is, I have a very, very quick fear response, <laughs> which comes up a lot. So that's a physical, physiological response. That will remain with me probably my whole life. There's things that I do to work with it and, you know, maybe it'll keep changing, but it's there. It's something that happens physiologically. So then if we're talking about if I were to have children, those children would feel that fear in me because kids pick up on everything. So even if, you know, so I, there were a lot of patterns that I started engaging in that were not helpful. So if I, if I hadn't done any work on myself or I hadn't had the, the privilege of being able to go to therapy or I hadn't learned some of these things, I would have also probably developed patterns and habits that were a repeat of that. You know, when, when we've experienced something scary, I mean, this is, we'll get into this later, I'm sure with bullying, it's like, why do we bully? Why do we hurt other people? It's because we're feeling pain and we repeat what happened to us, right? So if we've had something hard or scary, we will create a similar situation unconsciously. Everything we haven't processed becomes an unconscious driver. So because being terrified is normal for me, I naturally get myself into very scary situations. I've always done that. So I, you know, do things that other people wouldn't, you know, wouldn't want to do because they have a little bit of a better compass for what's too scary. So like, you know, when I first came to Australia, I hitchhiked across Australia right in the middle of, I kind of remember the name of that, you know, there was people, somebody like kidnapping hitchhikers at that time. Yeah, and that's I just, like, I've been the Blanglo State sort of stuff. There, there you go. go. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. here I am hitchhiking across Australia and not even thinking about it. You know, I started riding motorcycles when I was 21. I traveled by myself. I, I did all these things that, because I just didn't have a fear radar because my, it was just out of whack. So, uh, so, so, you so, so your, your risk appetite yeah. is directly influenced by your background and, 
And it, it, it's, it's, it's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? Instead of you resiling away from it, you're actually embracing it more and more and more because it's normal. Exactly, exactly. And there's actually a term for that. It's called counterphobic. Counterphobic. So, <laughs> counterphobic. I'm learning stuff so, today, Hayley. I'm learning exactly, stuff. Exactly, I know. So, so when, we're, when we're scared, we do one of two things. We either shy away from that feared stimulus or we try to pretend to ourselves that we're not scared of that. And therefore, we, we basically silence all of those fears. And then when we, we, the thing with emotions is you can't just shut down one emotion. You have to shut them all down. So you just kind of numb it all. And then, so that's when you start learning about people that are a bit of thrill seekers is often because we're understimulated. We, we don't like, it's like, it takes a lot to get us excited because we're just operating at that level of kind of like fear and numbness. So when you look at, for instance, me, like all of these things, if I hadn't resolved those, I'd be doing things that were quite scary. And regardless, like I might set up situations that are kind of scary because that makes sense to me. So then if I bring children into that, they're coming into an environment. So there's all these subtle ways that that would play out for them. So the more that I've processed and the more aware I am, the less I will do that. But there's no way I can erase my my history and I can't erase my thought patterns because when we're, you know, these things are all these subtle and I'm, and I'm always learning this. I find this fascinating. I'm always learning more and more layers of the ways that I've been impacted by all sorts of things in my life, more and more layers of like, oh, wow, you know, where did that thought come from? And so because we're always a work in progress, there's always going to be things that were just subtly ways that we're interacting with the world. And so kids are like sponges. So they feel all that. So, so for instance, in your story, you wouldn't, of course, you didn't experience the things that happened in your family, luckily, but you, but the people that did experience it felt things about it. They, they felt grief. They felt terror. They felt loss. They felt, you know, all of these things that they felt, the feelings are what live on. And when we don't have the space to notice them and, and release them and process them, we store those feelings in us. And that dictates how we interact. And so as children, whatever environment we're growing up in, we are picking up on all of these feelings. And so the, that feeling state becomes normal to us. And that is how intergenerational trauma passes, is that it's all of this subtle expectations of how the world is, which, which is really getting to the heart of what privilege means, right? Privilege is, is you know, there are people that grow up in environments where, where there's no thought that occurs in the, in the minds of parents that their child could, you know, do something great in the world. That thought doesn't occur to them because of their own experiences of trauma or, or that there's a brightness in their child. And so the child grows up not seeing their own brightness and therefore not being able to achieve things because they'd never have had that perspective. Can I ask a slightly controversial yeah. question? Because at the moment, there's a lot of anger about privilege going around. Is, is privilege a bad thing? No, I mean, nothing's inherently good or bad. It just is. You know, it's just, it's just something we have to recognize we, we have to recognize our own privilege. And it's like, like that is, I think, the key here. And this is where I'm incredibly passionate about this. It, change can only happen at the individual level. 
So we can't be going out there. I mean, we, we can go out there and ask people to change and that's great and we have to, and that's part of the journey. But ultimately things are only gonna change when each of us individually reflect on ourself and say, what does privilege mean to me? Where have I been privileged? What does that mean? Where have I not been privileged? Where, where are the, what are the things that have limited me? Um, and when we deep dive into that question, then we start to become honest and authentic. And that's all it's about. There's no way that we're ever going to live in a society where there's no privilege because everybody has a unique experience. So, so, so what I'm hearing here is that people come to the table, as it were, and carry with them different and unique concoctions of trauma, of privilege, of strengths, of weakness, of fear, of, of excitement, all, all manner of things. Mm-hmm. And that if we can proactively provide students with tools to do the work of reflecting on self, then we don't have to wait until they're in therapy to help them yes. do that. Can you, can you tell me what Open Parachute is doing in relation to that? Yes, absolutely. So that is what you just said is exactly what our mission is. So what the way we've learned to engage teenagers in this dialogue is that you know, it's really tricky as teens to listen to adults. <laughs> there's, a, there's a big barrier that comes up. What, what do they know? They're not part of this world. And developmentally, they're primed to want to fit in with their peers because they have to survive in a world when all the adults are gone. So the only way we can really reach them is if we start speaking in their language through their peers. And so the, what we do at Open Parachute is we create documentary videos of real teenagers sharing their own experiences. And we create these into curated videos that are a combination of these peer stories, as well as psychological reflections of what are the learnings we need to take out of these. Um, and then those are in use in a classroom setting with real practical psychological skill building tools of self-reflection of of working through these individually with partners as a class so they're really opening up the real conversations and the the benefit of using videos like this is that we're, we're we're creating a sense of safety of the real conversation so hearing from the mouth of a peer you know this is what happened this is what happened in my life this is what i felt about it and this this is what changes things is bu- building that empathy and that understanding and that oh okay i'm not the only one because that's what happens with young people when they're going through something hard they think there's something wrong with them and they're the only one that's ever felt this way. And that's what leads to disastrous consequences like isolating and suicidal thoughts and self-harm and addiction and all of these things is that sense of I'm all alone here. So we're creating these spaces that we can tackle things like peer dynamic issues, prejudice and privilege issues, bullying, mental health, all of these things that every child will experience, whether it's personally or or in their peer group, and actually opening it up and providing teachers with this tool, because that's the other piece is, is we know that mental health is important now, but then we dump that onto teachers and teachers, as you said, I mean, there's so many competing priorities. It's such a challenging job. And, you know, most teachers don't feel like they are a mental health expert, which is fair enough. And so what we're creating is these tools where the teacher doesn't have to know about mental health. They're just creating, they're facilitating the discussion. So the, the, all the lessons are pre-prepared in that way. 
So that's kind of the, what we're trying to do is help, help the whole cohort because, and we also have videos for parents. So we're, we're really trying to say, okay, what, how do we take this experience of students and how do we help create a whole dynamic around them where they're learning this in their peer group, they're learning this at home and they're learning this, you know, through their classrooms. Oh, Haley, it sounds so interesting. I can't wait to dig into it a little bit more in the in the next episode that uh, of of this special series. If I can, I just want to bring this part of the conversation to a close. I got an email yesterday from a young poet uh, called Lena Ma, who's um, uh, in Sydney, and she's uh, she's fascinated with history and she's uh, fascinated with words and poetry and so on. And she included some of her poetry in, 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 the, in the email to me. She has this line, history reframes every picture it paints. And that, that to me almost sounds like it sort of encapsulates in this weird sort of cosmic coincidental serendipitous way so much of the conversation we've been having today about mm. storylines and understanding mm -hmm. the storylines and exercising autonomy over your own storyline and finding your purpose along the way. Hayley, will you come back and have another chat with me? Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> the Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, Tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.